Hello again. Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street, the podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. My name is Alan. Last time, I talked about what seems to have been the biggest film at the very beginning of the new century. That film was the fight film between Jim Jeffries and Tom Sharkey. Today, I'll bring up what seems to have been the most popular film trend of the period the filming of real-life events. If things had stayed as they were, the moving images might have fallen into a service that provided everyone a chance to see real-life events projected inside a theater, whether that was a vaudeville house or a Nickelodeon. And eventually it would, once Path A established its newsreel service. But the movies would soon start experimenting with fictional stories as a way to entertain the public. I can't be sure of it, but I do think it's possible that this change came about because, for a time, major news events seemed to get slack. We know about this now. There are periods of time when things are just not happening. So the news service dig out stories to keep us entertained during these slow times. Some of us are news addicts and keep watching, but the rest of us start looking for other things of interest whenever there isn't a crisis or a major event of some kind. For Americans, the presidential election cycle keeps us distracted fairly often, but in between, we make do with whatever else happens. But in the period between the appearance of the projectors in 1896 until the beginning of the narrative at around 1903, quite a series of major events, from major pageants of royalty to presidential elections to calamities, provided a semi-regular rotation of news events that kept the vaudeville houses and traveling exhibitors busy with a renewal of films that could be offered every six months or so. There's also an interesting reaction to this growing interest in filmed news, and it affected the traveling exhibitors. In the first few years that films were offered, there was very little in the way of an independent traveling exhibition service. But some people did get hold of projectors and at least hold shows at a local church or opera house. The traveling projectionists usually offered the usual variety of Edison and Lumiere films, or if there was a service available, the Mutoscope Biograph films. But once interest in the news of the world started to fill the exhibition schedule, the exhibitors started to film local events in order to entertain the immediate audiences. These could be community picnics or the local fire department racing to a fire even if there wasn't one. I don't know if the people who now study early film have figured out whether the public of that time had expectations about these events covered by moving picture cameras. We are so used to having almost every incident covered by a camera and filmed for the evening news, but back at the end of the 1800s, That job was held by newspapers, and frankly, if you want to understand an issue, 
there's no better way than reading the newspapers. What television news offers is immediacy, but it also offers what the first moving picture cameras offered, and that was a real sense of place. There were a number of events, meetings, public ceremonies, riots, shootings, disasters, and wars, where in later times television cameras would have been there to visually record the event. But this wasn't the case at this time. Moving picture cameras were too new and too uncommon for there to be an army of globe-trotting cameramen recording all the important events. Instead, the handful of Lumiere cameramen, as well as the very few American film company cameras, singled out the events that they could afford to cover in the hope of retrieving whatever money they were spending on doing this through renting or selling their films, or through some arrangement with a local vaudeville house. As for the public, in 1896, their expectations were very low. At the time, cameramen were filming anything that showed movement, and that's all the public required. While in actuality, such as a moving train, met with much approval, it's hard to tell what a moving image of two important men shaking hands was to mean to an audience waiting to see several girls in a pillow fight. And yet, in that first year, the audiences were quite impressed with the images of a slow-walking Senator William McKinley as he headed towards a parade being held in his honor in Canton, Ohio and the film never showed the parade. Obviously, there was more to this moving picture thing than met the eyes of the first men involved in its development. The first important newsreel images that moved were of the parade of military men that passed before the thronging hundred thousands who were witnessing the coronation of Nicholas II, the Tsar of Russia. The Lumiere camera captured the event in its majestic regality, but the tragedy that followed could not be filmed. When huge mobs of Russian citizens swarmed the remains of the matrimonial dinner in order to feed on what was left. The full coronation event is talked about in much more detail in episode 23. The shift that steered the early moving pictures away from actualities and towards newsreels came slowly. 1896 had its share of calamities, but without a local news crew to quickly respond to the situation, it would have been days or weeks before these events would have been filmed, as if the cameramen would have even wanted to do this. The recording of a tragic actuality is probably a good indicator of when the movies changed from a novelty to a process that actually recorded events. Strangely, although there were no cameras filming the Charity Bazaar fire in Paris in 1897, the fact that a movie projector was involved in the fire may be about as close as an event of tragic proportions needed to be for the movies to be taken a little more seriously, at least in Europe. One major event that could have been filmed in 1896, but doesn't seem to have been, was the first modern Olympics, which took place at its ancestral home in Athens, Greece. 
it seems that the games were not yet that big a deal. Only nine sports were played in the competition, and they had a hard time getting the money to build a modern version of an ancient Greek stadium. It seems the Greeks turned out, but neither the Lumieres nor Robert Paul bothered to have the event recorded. Contrary to what you might see on YouTube, it seems that a number of videos which tell the story of the first Olympics are actually using footage from later Olympic Games or from other events that the athletes appeared in. Interestingly, we do get visual hints of a wilder event in 1896, although the films were not shot in that year. This was the beginning of the Yukon Gold Craze. It had been known for over two decades that there was gold in the Yukon, but it was found in limited quantities, certainly not in large enough numbers to inspire the fantasies of lots of young men to suddenly leave their jobs, their schooling, and their homes to chance the opportunity to muck around in the cold air and water of the Canadian Yukon. It was only when the Klondike strike was reported that men left in droves. That news trickled down from Canada in late 1896. By the spring of 1897, things really took off. Still, no one was making any attempt to travel up to the Yukon to film images of the gold rush. Later that year, two Edison cameramen, Frederick Blackenden and his supervisor, William White, headed out west to film in the California area and managed to capture some cinematic images of ships being loaded in San Francisco and embarking on a trip to the Yukon. But neither White nor Blackenden traveled to the gold fields, and by the next spring, the Edison Company, along with the rest of America, was caught up in the war fever over Cuba and the Philippines. Edison never did film the Klondike, the Yukon, or Alaska, but he did get involved with a Montana man named Thomas Crahan. Crahan had organized a group known as the Klondike Exposition Company and arranged for Edison to build them two projection cameras similar in style to the Biograph camera. The group attempted to film scenes involving the gold rush, and a few of them still exist. Eventually, the nearly bankrupt film group sold their project to the Edison Company and somehow it ended up in Vitagraph's hands, and they attempted to market it long after the rush was over. Not long after, the Miles brothers also attempted to film what was left of the gold rush with very limited results. In the 19th century, Britain had become the grandest and most powerful nation on earth, and much of that took place during the reign of Queen Victoria. She had been born in 1819, and at the age of 18, she became Queen of England. She married Prince Albert of the German Principality of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, whom she deeply loved. Although he was not made a king, he was her advisor, and when he died in 1861, when she was at the age of 42 years, she went into mourning that lasted the rest of her life. In 1887, England celebrated the 50 years of her reign, and in 1896, she surpassed George III as the longest reigning monarch in English history. 
while it was suggested that England hold another celebration for that record-setting milestone, Queen Victoria preferred that the celebration be postponed a year and combined with the celebration of her 60th year as Britain's monarch. In 1887, the world turned out to celebrate Queen Victoria. Rather than dragging the world's monarchs and presidents back over to London and putting them up again in the houses of Britain's elite, Victoria considered it better to simply celebrate Britain's empire. With that, militias and armies from all over the global empire, as well as the heads of those colonies and territories, all traveled to England to celebrate the Queen's 60 years on the throne. It may be hard to say how spectacular this event was to the British. It could be considered to be at least as big an event as Queen Elizabeth's coronation or Prince Charles and Diana Spencer's wedding decades later. It wasn't so much that it was the Queen's 60th year as it was a unique celebration of all the countries, colonies, and territories that were controlled by Britain and as understood by the many reporters that were covering this spectacle, these places were also devoted to Britain. The measure of that devotion was probably more measured in the decades of the 20th century, but in 1897 this celebration was truly magnificent. For over a week, people were lining along the parade path and establishing the best views for this massive ceremony. The route ran for six miles. Countless number of people crowded the route, and Mark Twain said the procession was endless. Celebrations were also held in Australia, Canada, India, Ireland, and New Zealand. At least a dozen cameramen were attending the public celebration. The Lumiere cameraman, Alexander Promio, and Henri Lavanche Clark were there, and so was Robert Paul. Bert Akers was also there, although his interest in making and selling movies was waning. A photographer named Richard Appleton had devised a camera projector printer, something like Lumiere's had. He called it the Serioscope and showed up to make films. George Hayden and Frank Urry were taking moving pictures with their autocosmoscope. John Couture was representing Gamont and using the company camera devised by Georges Damigny. British Mutoscope and Biograph was there. E.P. Prestwick was there, acting as a cameraman and film producer for what seems to have been a family operation known as Prestwick Manufacturing. This company had been working on side projects with William Fries Green, but now he was using the family-devised Moto Bijou Living Picture Camera to capture moving images of the parade. Adolf Langfierre was there with his velograph, and J.H. Smith, an Englishman living in Zurich, Switzerland, was there with his son Emil acting as his assistant. With two cameras, one which was probably loaded by his son, while the other was probably operated by Mr. Smith, he filmed the procession from the second-story window of an apartment. With a light-proof container for the films, they were able to film the entire procession on 16 rolls, each 60 millimeters long. 
His film was a success, and he played them at fairs and festivals for a number of years. Obviously, films about the Queen's Jubilee went over biggest in Britain. In a little over a week, Ted Hughes had the Press Witches films out. A magician known as Mr. Beaufort offered cinematograph moving images, as did the Alhambra in London, and the flood just started. The Tivoli offered Robert Paul's images, and even the Queen was honored with a cinematograph exhibition when a banquet was held in her honor at Windsor Castle. Not surprisingly, the films did not make a big impression in America. Still, just weeks after the Queen's dinner party, a Lumiere representative held a Diamond Jubilee Films exhibition at Fairmont Park in eastern Kansas City. And a month later, they were shown at Lake Manawa outside of Omaha. 1897 was also the year of William McKinley's inauguration as U.S. President, but that was discussed earlier. The next year saw the tragedy of the U.S. Maine and the war that followed. Remembering the Maine, fighting the Spanish-American War, and its sequel, the Philippine-American War, consumed much viewing time for America and its movies in 1898. At the beginning, both Edison and Biograph showed films that were basically vanity shots of our Navy's ships. There was even an attempt to pass off a picture of the USS Massachusetts as a picture of the USS Maine. Even during the fighting on San Juan Hill, the fight was later restaged for the camera. Even though the war was finished in a matter of four months, America would continue to see footage coming from the Philippines for the next two years. The next big event for the British was the Boer War. In many ways, the Boer War was simply a reenactment of the American Revolution, except for a few differences that had a big effect on the outcome of the war. The Dutch started the Cape Town colony, but the English ended up controlling it. By the 1800s, the Dutch colonial empire was failing, and the English were grabbing what they could, especially during and after the Napoleonic Wars. England was very attached to its Indian colony and grabbed whatever refueling stations it could in order to develop its global trade empire. Cape Town fit that bill. At the time, the British were not that demanding. But as with the American colonists, the Dutch Boers found British ways could be rather irritating and started to travel inland, getting away from the British, establishing farms throughout the southern tip of Africa, and occasionally fighting with native populations. Everything changed when diamonds were discovered in the Kimberley area, and southern Africa suddenly faced what could be called a gem rush. The gold rush would come later. Suddenly, the British found much more interest in an area they had considered as a refueling station and supply depot for Britain's global sailing ships. Worse, a flood of foreigners, mostly Brits hunting for diamonds, started to arrive and push led to shove. By the early 1880s, the Dutch were attacking British outposts and towns, including Kimberley. This is called the First Boer War, although it was basically a series of skirmishes that lasted a few months. 
The Second Boer War, or the official Boer War, started at the end of the 1880s, when a real gold rush hit in the Transvaal. As it happened during the First War, it began with Dutch Boer attacks and the British going out to quell the Boers. Again, like the American Revolution, despite facing trained soldiers, the independent but militarily untrained Boers proved to be tough riflemen, firing with deadly accuracy. Over most of the 1890s, this war escalated to the point that by 1899, Britain was sending a fairly decent amount of troops down to South Africa to fight the war. It was at this time that the war became official in the eyes of England, and it was at this time that cameramen went to war. A year before the war, Warwick Trading Company sent their cameraman, Joe Rosenthal, on what seems to have been a travelogue kind of cinematic adventure. Do you remember when I talked about Charles Urban during the episode on the British film companies? Urban was an American who came to London to help out the Edison's British representatives, McGuire and Bacchus. Eventually, he renamed the company Warwick Trading in order to make the company run by Americans sound British. At the time, Rosenthal was working as a druggist in London, and his sister was working for Warwick. The movie company must have either sounded exciting or promised better pay, so Rosenthal started making movies. It's also possible that his chemistry background helped with film development. Before the problems in South Africa exploded into a major war, Rosenthal had arrived in the African hotspot to film various things, such as a street in Cape Town, ships in the harbor, black laborers building a railroad, and Navy sailors drilling with cannons and guns. He returned to England before the war started. Once it did, Warwick sent him back, along with three other cameramen, Edgar Hyman, Sidney Goldman, and John Bennett Stanford. These gentlemen all traveled at different times. It sounds like Hyman was the first, along with Bennett Stanford. Hyman filmed in Cape Town, while Bennett Stanford followed General Gattaker into the Orange Free State. Bennett Stanford soon returned to England, and Rosenthal replaced him. By the time that Rosenthal was in Pretoria with General Buller, Hyman was filming with him. It was Rosenthal that recorded the film Lord Roberts Raising the Flag over Pretoria. When Rosenthal returned home, Goldman replaced him. I get the feeling that the films of the Spanish-American War had a big effect on the war films being made by the British film companies because much of what they recorded was similar to the American war films. That would be lots of footage of troops embarking onto ships, troops arriving, generals and officers posturing for the camera, distant battlefields, and reenactments. It wouldn't be until the early 1910s that cameramen started to truly brave the action by filming battles from a closer perspective. Although the world's greatest military minds had not yet admitted it, the battles had changed significantly from the days of military charges on horseback. Even the Napoleonic Wars had become something rather grandiose and distant. 
By the time of the arrival of the film camera, war had become too massive to record on film the way it was represented in paintings. Eventually, Robert Paul also went to South Africa, where he enlisted the help of two British soldiers who acted as camera operators for him. They were the people who captured the film of the town of Coronier surrendering to Lord Roberts. William Kennedy Laurie Dixon also traveled to Cape Town for British Mutoscope and Biograph. He followed General Buller extensively and was with him when he helped take Pretoria. As for the movies, at this stage of the game, it's not surprising that a number of reenactments were filmed. There were a few made by the companies who had cameramen at the front, but those were few. The majority of the fake films came from two sources. The first was a small British company by the name of Mitchell and Kenyon, and the other, not surprisingly, was the Edison Company back in New Jersey. Based in East Orange, the Edison Company had access to the low-lying Orange Mountains, and James White filmed reenactment battles using local people in costumes. In the capture of the Boer Battery by the British, maybe a dozen people dressed in what would seem like mountain men clothing, gathered around what seemed like Civil War cannons, until they fled from what may have been a dozen or two dozen people barely able to run up the hill. This film is much less convincing than the boxing reenactments, and it's very possible that this was only meant for the American market. While these reenactments would continue, it seems to be around this time that the public started to take the newsreel idea seriously. The moving pictures were no longer considered a novelty, and a few expectations were now being placed upon the medium, although truth was not yet one of them. The public was accustomed to thinking about writing and performance as being more about point of view rather than some ultimate truth. Newspapers took sides, politicians did, and artists had their own points of view. So why not moving pictures? The public's attitude doesn't seem to be so much about expecting truth from these minute-long strips of sequential photographs, but rather more about trying to understand what could be expected from these films. After all, it was at this time that the French politically exploded from the accusations of the Dreyfus Affair, and it certainly seems as though the last thing the French public wanted was the truth. What they wanted was to believe that their institutions of power made the right decisions. In this case, even the film about the trial was banned. Through the 1800s, France had struggled with various forms of government, and by the 1880s, it looked as if it had found its republican footing, as opposed to a monarchical or king-based government. The Catholic Church had returned to power, and the public wanted to believe in its leading organizations, meaning the Church, its military, and its elected government. Unfortunately, the politicians were very divided. The newspapers were virulent in what they printed. The army was still struggling with its failures during the Franco-Prussian War, and the Catholic Church was proving to be rather anti-Semitic. The Church's views were supported by a nasty bit of screed published by Édouard Drummond, 
1886, and the book proved to be popular. Dreyfus also had a set of problems in the army. While the French army was not particularly anti-Semitic in a general kind of way, the division he worked in was. He and a number of officers in the intelligence division were from the Alsace, one of the two areas of France taken by the Germans in the last war. There were fears that some of these men were pro-German, and when it was discovered that someone was leaking information to the Germans, it was easiest to frame the Jew. At this point, there was no reason for the public to believe that the army was lying to them, nor the church. Dreyfus was an innocent man framed for someone else's spying. Unfortunately, it was easy to see that the evidence was cooked, but the army hid that rather than admitting that someone in their midst was a spy and they didn't know who. Dreyfus was sent to Devil's Island, where he was the sole prisoner and where he was shackled to his bed. It was his brother who started the campaign to investigate the trial and question the evidence. This took years as no one wanted to admit the powers-to-be had lied, and as the evidence started to unravel in its deceit, rather than siding with the victim, the public chose to side with the lying institutions. It was easier to believe a lie than to accept the truth from a Jew which is certainly a twist on the more humanitarian aspects of Christian logic. So they violently protested any attempts to help Dreyfus. With these protests, it was now obvious that France had a deeper problem with anti-Semitism than anyone would have guessed. The protests were so violent that some people believed that France was headed towards another revolution. It's at this point that some of France's intellectuals started to condemn some of the beliefs of the army, the church, and the public, with one of France's leading writers, Emile Zola, leading the way. The French public condemned him as a traitor because he accused the army of a cover-up. This was in January of 1898. A year and a half later, Georges Méliès made a film about it. It can be assumed that Méliès was one of the group of French artists who believed in Dreyfus's cause. By 1899, all of the public evidence had been proven to be forged or poorly analyzed. The argument for this time was simply whether the army could admit that it had made a mistake, which up to this point it would not. While Méliès's film points out the forgeries, the anti-Semitism, and the inability of people to admit that they were wrong, his real plea was just to set Dreyfus free. At the time, he was still in a military prison, at least now in France, where he faced his latest trial. Milliez seems to have released this film at the end of the summer of 1899, but the French government banned it. At least he didn't go to jail in the same way that Zola did. Méliès had made 11 one-minute films, with each being a different part of the Dreyfus story. It's interesting how some film historians equate Méliès's story to the passion play. Dreyfus had become a martyr to the cause of humanity. But also, like a passion play movie, these films could be shown individually or collectively. 
shown together they kind of represented the Dreyfus story, but even more important, collectively they told a bigger story. And that suggested that combining reels of film could create a longer narrative, something that only Méliès had been playing with at this time. At the time when the French government banned Méliès's film, it was probably due to their worries in case rioting broke out over the film. France's worldwide reputation at this time was even worse than that of Britain, as England continued to fight freedom fighters in South Africa. But looking back, it also seems as if the French government was attempting to put the entire incident to rest with as little pain as possible. Almost immediately after the film's release, they pardoned Dreyfus. As always, the reason was political. In seven months, France would be opening its fifth World's Fair. With so many countries around the world condemning the French for their anti-Semitic attitudes, officials in Paris were worried about a cultural flop. And it's this fair that would become the next newsreel event. The Exposition Universelle of 1889 was a major event in World's Fair history. These fairs had started in London, but by the end of the century, Paris always seemed to be holding one. In a way, the world probably took it for granted that Paris excelled at this kind of thing. The 1889 World's Fair was a festival in steel design and gave the world the iconic symbol of the era, the Eiffel Tower. Edison displayed a massive celebration of his electrical genius and his good ideas about the making of moving picture machines started there. Four years later, Chicago held its Columbian Exposition as a way to celebrate how the city rose from its 20-year-old ashes to become an architectural marvel. While the White City would not leave the world with anything as iconic as the Eiffel Tower, it left the world with a view of how beautiful a fair could be even if it was built out of wire and plaster. But even before the doors opened on the Chicago World's Fair, Berlin started to make plans for a fair in 1900. When the Paris Fair Commission got wind of this rumor, they believed that there was no way that Berlin would hold a fair on such an epic-defining year as 1900. Centennial years were for defining the past or the future. A Berlin fair would have meant a fair about science, armaments, and weapons. The French wanted it to be about art and culture and immediately made plans for their own 1900 fair. At that time, the public had not yet greeted the Eiffel Tower as an artistic symbol of the triumph of industrialization. Many thought it were rather barren and even ugly. But beauty and uniqueness soon made it a symbol of the fin de siècle Paris. In fact, the tower had become so iconic so quickly that one of the attempts of the commissioners of the 1900 fair was to create something unique enough to be considered the equal of the Eiffel Tower. That not only didn't happen, it led the fair to become kind of an architectural hodgepodge of both the 1889 fair and the Chicago fair. Lots of buildings showed a collision of 19th century styles, but only one, 
the Art Nouveau building showed any current architectural design. Unfortunately, its Art Nouveau style was still too serpentine and stylistic for architecture. Its look was decorative rather than structural. In a way, it seems that the fair was a repeat of the past, not only in design, but in its need to beat the 1889 fair. It was to be an exposition in light, and it would celebrate all the latest trends, from electricity to impressionism. Everything was illuminated, including the Eiffel Tower, and X-ray machines were displayed, along with the Lumiere's attempt to merge sound with vision. In other words, talking movies. The brothers also displayed a large screen to show movies, much larger than anyone had ever seen up to this point. The highlight of the fair was really its moving sidewalks. These were not meant to be eternal symbols of the fair, but simply functional novelties. The concept is not that hard to grasp, as we sometimes find them in airports. The fair offered them in three speeds, fast for the young, moderate for those of middle age, and slow for the old people. Actually, one of the main problems was that the idea of a world's fair was evolving. Through the 19th century, these fairs had been thought of as a celebration of progress, but with the arrival of Edison's phonograph, novelty started to creep in. The Chicago Fair had all sorts of novelties, such as the amusements along the Midway. Some sources claim that this is where America's middle class first heard jazz, but when I visited an exposition about the fair at the Field Museum in Chicago, nothing was mentioned about jazz but it was available in the clubs in the loop. Anyway, Paris Fair was forced to bow to this growing trend in amusement and entertainment, and it shows. The sidewalks became novelties rather than advancements in culture. The Lumieres were at the fair, but it doesn't seem that they filmed anything. It also seems that Edison didn't make the trip over, although his head cameraman, James White, did. He filmed images from a boat in the Seine, Paris's iconic river. He also caught images of some of the buildings, such as the Palace of Electricity. But the most appreciated films were the ones made of the moving sidewalks. Like I said, novelty was in full swing. 1900 was also the year of the next presidential election. McKinley was running for office with the Republican Party's newest star, Teddy Roosevelt, as his VP. Running against him was the same man who ran against him in 1896, William Jennings Bryan. The Democrats believed in their cross of gold speaker and put him up for the second time against McKinley, believing that most Americans resented our involvement in Cuba and the Philippines. The Democrats were wrong. It's possible that the Democrats, or at least Bryan and his manager, believe that one of the reasons Bryan lost in 1896 was the movie shorts that were made of McKinley. I have no facts to base that opinion on, but in 1900, it was Bryan's turn to make a film. The Mutoscope Biograph people came out and filmed Bryan walking throughout his farm, dressed in appropriate clothing of blue jeans and a hickory shirt. This was meant to portray Brian as a man of the people. 
it didn't work. McKinley was a well-liked and popular president, and he was swept back into office. So far, the movies had not done well when it concerned calamities and tragedies. But at the beginning of September in 1900, a hurricane slammed into Galveston, Texas, and the destruction and death toll was astounding. As you may or may not know, Galveston is on an island at the mouth of Galveston Bay, which is both the harbor for Galveston and the entryway into the harbor at Houston. A storm came up out of the Caribbean, severely damaging Cuba about three or four days earlier. The Cuban Weather Service reported the storm to the National Weather Bureau and predicted it would head towards Texas. Bureau, on the other hand, believed the storm was going to turn back upon Florida. So they issued warnings up and down the Florida coast and up into the Carolinas. Somehow none of this reached the weather people at Galveston. Signs of the storm built all day, but without a weather warning from the Bureau, Galveston proved to be rather complacent and didn't get prepared. When the storm hit, wind piled up a lot of water against the coastal beaches and caused some flooding. But once the storm's eye passed west of the city, the weakening hurricane threw water from the back bay upon the city in such depth and ferocity that it wiped out the city and left somewhere around 10,000 people dead. Actually, I've read estimates between eight and 12,000. Bodies were strewn everywhere, and many more had been swept out into the Gulf. At the time, Galveston was arguably the wealthiest city in Texas, but the hurricane completely ruined the city's fairy tale view of itself. The streets were just clogged with debris. And while bodies were not dumped into the gulf, mass cremations had to be held due to all the death and decay. Up to this point, movie cameras had not discovered disasters. So it was quite unusual for Albert Smith of Vitagraph to suddenly appear undercover in Galveston as a salvage man only to take moving pictures of the scene using an Edison camera. Vitagraph was one of the first movie companies whose primary goal was to make and sell movies, not machinery or accessories. At this point, the company, while successful, had not yet been that profitable. Like the Edison company, their market was not yet that big. They had come up against Edison, who threatened them with lawsuits unless they distributed through his company. While this war was going on, Edison did loan them his new camera, one with a swiveling neck that allowed for panning. The new Edison camera had been used by James White at the Paris Exposition, where he recorded 360-degree images of the fair. Smith's recorded slow pans of Galveston's Main Street, littered with building debris, while sad residents slowly walked the streets in a daze, looking for help. Eight films were made and distributed to the Edison Company, leaving many people to believe that the Edison Company made those films. They didn't. They just distributed them and took a percentage. Now, 
we finally get to the point where a newsreel company will eventually take over from the Edisons, the Lumieres, the Dixons, and the like, as Pathé, a French film company, starts making newsreels. I'll talk more about Pathé on a later podcast, but for now, I'll mention that the company was started as a phonograph shop run by four brothers, which is why the company is actually named Pathé Frère. And in 1901, it was Pathé that filmed the funeral of Queen Victoria and later the coronation of Edward VII. Queen Victoria was 81 at the time. She was pretty old, but not quite as old as she looked. Despite being the Queen of England, she seems to have had a rather active sex life with her husband as she had nine children. She became quite heavy in her last years and had to travel by wheelchair. And as she grew older, all of her children were in denial about her health, as was she. In her final days, her doctor was so concerned, he had to contact her grandson, by then the German Kaiser Wilhelm, to come over to London and put her family straight about the health of their mother. It was the Kaiser who announced the imminent death of the Queen to the British public and press. Her death came in a series of strokes in which her lack of mobility and activity probably contributed. Interestingly, she was buried with a number of sentimental items, including the ring of the mother of her Scottish gameskeeper and later her personal servant, John Brown. There have been rumors that the two had a secret relationship in the years after the death of Prince Albert. The Queen's funeral was a massive procession as it wound down streets towards Windsor Castle. 33,000 soldiers took part. At first, her coffin was carried by a British cruiser named Albert as it slowly passed 11 miles of battleships and other cruisers, each firing guns in her honor. From the harbor, it traveled by train to Paddington Station, where it was loaded onto a gun carriage. Unfortunately, the horses waiting to pull the carriage bolted in the cold weather, leaving the carriage's gun traces broken. Instead, 138 Navy Blue Jackets pulled the carriage to St. George's Chapel, and the next day she was laid into the family mausoleum. After the Queen's funeral came the coronation of her son, Edward VII, about a year and a half later. Edward had been both a man who sowed many wild oats as well as one who had handled his finances much better than most of his siblings and cousins. He married Prince Alexandra of Denmark at the age of 21, and yet much of his life revolved around affairs he had with over 50 women and by one count included minor royalty and famous actresses. Despite this, he was fairly temperate in his drinking and was quite solvent in his finances. He was over 60 when he was elevated to King of England. Originally, the coronation was scheduled for June of 1902. By that time, Edward was a very large man with a 48-inch waist. Three days before the coronation, he showed signs of suffering from major abdominal problems. Some sources call it an abdominal cyst, but the Westminster Abbey website says it was appendicitis. 
Regardless, he was operated on twice in an attempt to remove the pus, and the ceremony was postponed until early August. In the meantime, Charles Urban, the American-running Warwick Trading Company in London, had been attempting to gain permission to film the coronation, something he could not achieve. Urban was the major exporter of foreign films to America at this time, so with the help of both Georges Méliès and George Smith, who was a filmmaker in Brighton, Urban concocted what was called the pre-construction of the coronation ceremony. Between the three men, a large set was built at Méliès's studio in Montreal in suburban Paris, with the film being shot with one of Urban's Warwick cameras. Smith would act as a cameraman. Urban gave Méliès an official schedule of the ceremony, as well as photographs of Westminster Abbey. While the painted set shows some of the high-contrast look of Méliès's films, it also was quite a detailed and accurate representation of the church. Méliès hired people who could look the part of the figures including an actress from the Théâtre de Châtelet to play Queen Alexandra, and a lavatory attendant he knew who looked the part of Edward VII. The film had been made in the spring of 1902 with the intent to release it right after the June coronation. But once the coronation was pushed back to August, so was the release of the film. On the day of the coronation, Urban shot images of the carriages arriving at Westminster Abbey, and these films were developed and edited into the beginning and end of the Millez film. That evening, it was premiered at the Alhambra Theatre in London. Obviously, the Millez film was a six-minute version of an hours-long coronation, but even more curiously, some of the events that took place in the six-minute film never happened as some of the steps in the coronation were shortened or removed due to Edward's lingering illness. Regardless, the film was a big hit in England, and as Urban represented Mutoscope Biograph, he was able to get the film immediately distributed in America. The film was also available in France, but Millez didn't market it, as the film was technically an Urban Warwick Biograph production. After the coronation, the dust settled upon the big events for a few years. The newsreel idea would carry on, but other trends would soon outshine basic news event cinematography. Pathé would soon assume the responsibility of making newsreels, and others would simply rent their service. Next time, we'll look at some of the interesting things that were popping up concerning the movies at the beginning of the new century. Thanks for listening.